Welcome to Sagittarius Eye, issue 33, February 3307, expertly recorded to keep you entertained and informed, out in the black. Editorial Fliving. This is the strange new word that's been doing the rounds amongst certain parts of the Pilots' Federation community. If you've not encountered it yet, it's a portmanteau of flying and driving and applies to the humble scarab, the vehicle that most of us are all too familiar with. With some practice and a bit of luck, it's possible to exceed by a considerable margin the normal top speed of the SRV by strategically bouncing it off the crests of ridges and hills, tilting the vehicle forwards and using the thrusters to propel it onwards at ever greater velocity. This rather hazardous activity, and starting out isn't easy, does result in a few destroyed SRVs, but given time it's been honed into an essential racing technique. It's also just one of the things the racer needs to master to be competitive in the Scarab Mastery Challenge, an event in which one of our reporters takes part, and no doubt surrounded by the wreckage of an SRV, gives us an insight into the top levels of planetary racing that's going on today. There's something to be said for those who look to break the limits. In the past, we've covered the art of speed bowling, another neologism that relates to finding and thoroughly exceeding the limits of our ships, with the aid of a planet's gravity. In another universe, the ship or vehicle's design authority may look to clamp down and fix whatever allows us to go beyond its limit, but fortunately for us, Vodalers refrain from doing this, as have the shipbuilders. In both cases, this ability to punch through the limits was evidently not intended. It's just that creative pilots found a way. Undoubtedly, in the coming months, commanders who are not afraid of a brush with hard vacuum will be testing and breaking the limits of the new spacesuits too. We at Sagittarius I will be watching developments closely and no doubt will be sending a hapless reporter to cover whatever transpires. The Scarab Mastery Championship. Following up on the massive success of his eight-wheel drive endurance championship, Commander Black Maze is at it again, having put together a new hit racing series, the Scarab Mastery Challenge. With a seasoned roster of top Scarab racers and a host of challenging and unique course designs, this series proves likely to be a new standard for SRV racing in the galaxy. After covering previous races on the ground and in the action, your correspondent decided once again to not only report on the action, but to participate in it as well. The first of eight rounds of the series took place on the 5th of December, 3306 at Taylor Keep on 12 Trianguli A1. This was a notable location as Taylor Keep is in fact an abandoned INRA base with a shadowy, barely documented history. The view from the disused base is breathtaking. Located at the foot of a deep valley within a massive crater, the long deserted buildings are surrounded on three sides by massive cliff walls and mountain formations. Excitement was soaring as racers readied themselves for the first of three challenges that day, a short sprint from the settlement boundary leading to a brutal hill climb of the westerly canyon wall. 
This first challenge was to be a time trial event with the racer's order selected by random draw. Sir Baltazar, a popular racer from the prior eight-wheel drive series, was selected to make the first run. Chatter over course comm ceased as the first run of the series began. Sir Baltazar executed a respectable, though shaky, approach up to the base of the hill, but was ultimately unable to complete the climb up the vicious terrain within the allotted time limit and conceded. The following attempts by various racers found mixed success, with only seven of the 15 racers able to complete the climb. Unsurprisingly, Commander Skewer completed the fastest run of the course with an outstanding time of 1 minute and 56 seconds. This reporter managed to log a second place run at nearly 20 seconds slower than Skewer's time. The second challenge of the day consisted of a base jump from one of the massive cliffs surrounding Taylor Keep, nearly 6 kilometers up. Racers would have to descend from incredible heights as quickly and safely as possible and then make their way to the surface of the landing pad within the settlement. This, like the previous challenge, was also to be a time trial event, providing a frantic spectacle for each racer's attempt. Surprisingly, all but one of the racers were able to complete the course without completely destroying their scarabs but not without many heavy impacts and violent crashes throughout. Skewer once again clocked the fastest time at a mere 48 seconds, bullseyeing the target landing pad from the top of the cliff. Commander Shea Blackwood came in second with a time of 58 seconds. The final challenge of the event was to be a live rallycross race throughout Taylor Keep. The course proved a tricky one for all participants with a variety of jumps, obstacle, tight turns, and chicanes. The starting line was tightly packed as the racers eagerly prepared for 15 difficult laps. As the start sounded, this reporter pushed wide and caused Skewer to collide with several other racers. With the chaos of a crossover section and the variety of obstacles mixed with short lap times, the field quickly became more of a battlefield than a race course. Your correspondent was able to stay in the lead, keep distance from the turmoil behind, and ultimately cross the finish line first. Second place was claimed by Commander Imbo, with Commander Fat Haggard, one of the founders of the Elite Racing Federation, finishing in third. Upon finishing the day, and with Skewer having trouble throughout the rallycross race, the championship points were tight. Commander Skewer held the lead at seven championship points, with this reporter in second and Commander Shea Blackwood in a close third. As a celebration of a successful race day, the racers communally decided to participate in a combined base jump off the same near 6-kilometer cliff that had been the starting point for the second challenge. Diving off a sheer ledge that high with such a number of skilled SRV pilots is something your correspondent will not soon forget. Following the excitement of the day, we had a short interview with Sir Baltazar about how the day had gone for him. 
We asked him what his most notable moment from the race day was. I think it was the very first discipline, the hill climb. I was first out of the box, hand sweaty, pulse racing. I lined up and smashed the gas. About 40 meters per second was about all I could muster before the hill. Got about halfway up and bang, I came to a dead stop. After that, it was a bloody mess. I did give it a couple of tries, but I was near the time limit. I conceded, because I knew I probably wasn't going to make it. The racing order was generated randomly for 15 races, give or take. I think I may have known that, but I didn't think for one second I have been first. And being a hill climb, it should have been easy enough. It wasn't. I'm thinking that I should have played the lottery or something, but knowing my luck, I'd have won a replay and had to endure that again, if not lost my space box. Sir Baltazar was also asked if he felt his experience during the eight-wheel drive endurance championship had helped him prepare for the current series. I learned something new every day in that championship. The other racers have helped a lot and are always willing to give advice. I'm sure that they are keeping the super secret stuff to themselves though, so spying is always encouraged. Now, with the Scarab Mastery Challenge, it's more than just racing, it's more than just flying, it's total SRV control. Practice is mandatory, even for the veterans. The second round of the series took place on the 12th of December, 3306, at Napier installation on Ross 671B3. This round would consist of another hill climbing time trial event, an urban parkour time trial, and an urban parkour live race. Taking place on a planet with much lower gravity than round one, this event would prove to be an entirely different challenge from that at 12 Trianguli. Following his successes in round one of the series, it surprised no one when Commander Skewer clocked the fastest time of the day during the early hill climb session. Following a descent with zero pips to engines, racers had to make their way across the base of a valley and through a small settlement before being allowed to move power back to engines and begin a treacherous hill climb. Skewer finished the course with an amazing time of 3 minutes 14 seconds, with Shea Blackwood coming in a close second, just 15 seconds off the pace. The Urban Parkour Time Trial event showcased the creativity of racers as they were forced to make their way across the entirety of Napier installation in whatever way possible, from outside the wall to the opposing side. A variety of tactics were used, including impressive routes from both Skewer and Shea Blackwood, who performed massive flying leaps from building to building. Shea ultimately finished with the fastest time, with Skewer coming in a close second. The final event of the day was a race around the stadium wall boundaries, over the protruding legs of the wall. Racers flew from leg to leg, some catching every bounce along the way and others skipping legs as they rounded the base. A three-way battle between this reporter, Skewer, and Shea Blackwood came early in the race, but after a short time the battle for the lead came down to only Skewer and Shea. With a brilliant last-second pass, Shea snatched the win from Skewer and secured an overall win on the day. Round three of the championship took place on the 19th of December, 3306, at Zahn Legacy Speedway on Sirius 3. 
This race day brought a slight change of pace with only one time trial event, an urban parkour challenge, an urban parkour live race, and a lapped live race on tarmac. The additional live racing would be problematic for many of the participants. The urban parkour time trial to start the day proved absolutely brutal with only two of the racers managing to finish. Your correspondent squeaked out a narrow first place coming in less than one second faster than Shay Blackwood, the only other survivor. The urban parkour live race showcased tight racing around the upper perimeter of the base, including landing pads and cargo unloading areas. This reporter managed to snag an early lead and avoid the host of collisions and scarab banging further back in the pack. Ultimately, this reporter was able to finish first once more, with Commander Ephemeris coming in second place. The final race of the day revealed exactly why Zahn Legacy is known by the racing community as Zahn Legacy Speedway. The long roads that stretch around the planetary port make for great flying opportunities, allowing racers to build up more speed than can be generated solely by driving. Having won the prior events in the day, this reporter was able to start at the front of the grid and hold the lead all the way to the end. Tight battles raged among small packs of racers behind as the arduous five laps of the race slowly counted down. In the end, the well-known time trial savant Commander Terracidic snagged second place, with Shea Blackwood coming in a close third. After a long holiday break, racers began to prepare for the upcoming fourth round of the series. Between practice sessions, we at Sagittarius Eye were able to sit down with the series organizer, Commander Blackmaze, in the crew lounge at Copra Point the location of the upcoming event. We asked him how he felt this series had been going, following upon the success of the eight-wheel drive series. Well, first of all, a big thanks for the exposure. Hopefully you won't mind if I quickly invite everyone interested in raising ships and SRVs to come and visit us. Our doors are wide open to everyone. So the eight-wheel drive endurance championship was all about weighing up a given speed and the damage potential of that speed versus the speed of others. How fast do you pace yourself? How much hold do you risk to stay ahead? The Scarab Mastery, on the other hand, is an entirely different cup of tea, because instead of focusing on endurance, it's all about proving you have absolute control over your Scarab across urban parkour stages and circuit races. You've got to think millisecond precise control over the wheels and thrusters to optimize things like pitch attitudes and negative boosting, and then making small adaptations depending on the gravity of the planet. The Scarab is pretty easy to drive, but incredibly tough to master, so I think the Scarab Mastery Championship does a real fine job in separating the casuals from the pros. We asked Black Maze about his favorite moment of the races thus far. Well, racers spend about a week practicing courses, and when they then finish a single attempt time trial on a live race day with just a second between them, I get excited. Putting run side by side to find out where people gain and lose time is by far my favorite thing to show people. In this case, I'm referring to Osashes finishing a second ahead of Shape Blackwood on the Cirrus Urban Parkour stage. See, this stage had pitch 90 wall riding and jumping between rooftops, so getting an optimized rundown was very difficult, especially on a live race day where again you only get a single attempt. 
We pointed out that Black Maze is known as quite the skilled SRV pilot in his own right. He was asked how he thought he would do if he was racing in his own series. I've always loved the Scarab. I love its handling and I spend a huge amount of time just racing across terrain and jumping up buildings. I'd consider myself a master of the Scarab, honestly, so I'd like to think I'd do pretty well. The awesome thing, though, about all of this is that you only get a single shot on the race day and when you are performing with other racers around you that master the Scarab at least as much as you do, a single mistake is really all it takes to lose out on a win. This is the great thing about it and why I don't think anyone is guaranteed a win. It is as much about focus, concentration and the ability to stay calm as it is about mastering the Scarab. The latter I have down. The first part though, not so much. Round 4 of the championship is set to take place on the 9th of January 3307. Somehow, after a very successful round 3, your correspondent has found himself with a narrow points lead in the series with five full rounds remaining and a tight spread of points at the top, anything can and likely will happen. We at Sagittarius Eye look forward to more exciting racing action and the thrill it provides. Wheels up, Commanders! The Imperial Courier, a homing missile capable of frame shift. A pearl white hull, laced with neon blue accents, complementing a slate grey secondary. A canopy so clear, the stars shine brightly enough to illuminate each detail of a cockpit that no words can describe perfectly. Stunning. Beautiful. A gentle yet razor-sharp bask in sunlight and wealth, as the thrusters coils amid sounds of synchronized harmony. 19 G's of ammonious acceleration from its four main engines. Exhilarating. Exuberant. With enhanced performing thrusters, it can reach escape velocity for nearly any moon in less than four seconds. The calm darkness of space is quickly disrupted by a race between it and a missile. In terms of firepower, its three class two hardpoints granted superiority. In terms of class, there is no contest. With a seat stitched by hand and a console made of the strongest carbon fiber you've seen in a production ship, it really feels like a high-speed transport made for one. You. The custom-tailored controls fit in the hand, but the ship responds to the mind. Think what you want and your wish becomes its command. As one of the smallest Gutumaya designs, only a handful of ships can try to outmaneuver it. Anything bigger will have trouble just getting a target lock. The only thing that can slow down this 2.5 million credit projectile is a large ship's mass lock factor. For about 6 seconds. A single boost can clear the mass lock of a Coriolis starport. In an atmosphere, its stop speed exceeds Mach 2, two times the speed of sound. As luxurious and capable as it sounds, however, it's not a ship for everyone. You need to be a master to enjoy it. In both senses of the word. The rank with the Imperial Navy and at controlling a ship that is almost pure velocity and can drift out of control faster than you can say Aisling Duval. Despite the naval rank requirement, 
It is not a ship fit for a lone soldier in a conflict zone. Sure, no federal dropship can catch up to you or hope to do more damage than Class 2 B-waves can regenerate. But unless you are on a mission to stop an enemy from jumping out to summon reinforcements or split off a Ferdelance in a battle for honor and glory, you'll feel choked and limited, being unable to reach top speed and losing an orbit due to its weaker translational thrusters. As invigorating the neon strip lighting may make you feel, it is not as always enjoyable to battle alone. But that goes for most small combat ships. For those dedicated to fight for the Empire, a wing of these speed demons can shred hostile forces while you and your mates chatter about the outcome of yesterday's fencing match and upcoming plans for an eagle racing championship in your estate's yard over voice comms. For the lone duke who wants something a bit faster than the cutter they use on Thursdays, you can descend into the cockpit and intercept hostiles and supercruise. Establishing an interdiction tether in a ship that can do a turnaround before hardpoints deploy is done easily and comfortably, success being nearly guaranteed. Whether you've been directed to assassinate a defector or destroy a protected convoy of enemy technology, know that this ship, in capable hands, has you covered. With module room and power capacity to support shield boosters for resistance tanking and a low mass for easy shield optimizing, you can sting like a Terran Hornet before even worrying about shield strength. With one hardpoint under the cockpit and others sliding out of each engine the cell, a trained commander can probably use fixed weapons from a decent distance without worrying about projectile convergence problems. But in a multi-million credit ship handcrafted by Kutumaya's talented workers, why bother? Gimbal weapons can keep up just fine. Even if your opponent can't, landing hits without worrying about predicting your target's vector so much also leaves you more free to enjoy the flight, leisurely draining shields and cutting scars into the other's hull. Although many originally believed this ship to be an optional stepping stone along the journey to attain a cutter, the stairs into the cockpit are of equal class and elegance. More enjoyable than a ship-launched fighter, with none of the detriments to agility. It can compete head-to-head -head with a Viper Mark III, while feeling classy enough to pull away just by looks. It is not an explorer, nor a trader, and certainly not the ship to sully in a hazardous resource extraction site among filthy pirates and dust. It is pure bliss to fly without restrictions, the only limitation being your own ability to attain maximum speed and agility. Be a silent and deadly thorn in your enemy's flank, or gift the queen a few of the low temperature diamonds you took as tax from a peasant's cargo hold to repay your gracious courtesy. Immerse yourself in the Imperial Courier. Of Eagles and Angels On the 4th of October 3306, a group of explorers set out on the Eagles and Angels expedition 
to chart a number of poorly surveyed regions in an attempt to find scientifically or aesthetically interesting locations. Their goal was to reach Aquila's halo, a far-off region of space with a very low density of stars. The name Aquila's halo presumably derives from its location in the namesake Aquila constellation. It's difficult to pinpoint because the region is so vast and stretches to the galactic rim, hence the halo in its name, an allusion to the galaxy's halo that extends for thousands of light years beyond. There isn't much information available on that stretch of space apart from a few very early unofficial discoveries archived by the EDSM mapping service. So it was logical to recruit a crew of seasoned explorers to conduct some FSD astronomy, the euphemistic term for going there in a ship and having a look. We asked expedition leader Commander Just Bear Lai to share his reasons and ideas for putting this expedition and crew together. From my earliest days as a pilot, I'd hear the thin gnat voices cry star to faint star across the sky, as the 20th century poet Rupert Brooke wrote long ago. Despite being a loner in many ways, I also enjoy the occasional companionship of meeting fellow explorers in remote places. I've led one previous expedition, Eastern Promise, on the Far Eastern Rim. I've also taken part in several others under the inspiring guidance of Commander Yannick, and wanted to take a few bold souls with me to the far wilds of the galaxy. Although the expedition officially started on the 4th of October, staff preparations had been underway at least a month earlier, because the roster included two fleet carriers that were meant to support the endeavour, and which needed to be in place at the expedition's destination. In a roll call, participating pilots were encouraged to fuel the carriers and also dock their mining, racing and auxiliary ships in advance, so there was some considerable logistics involved. Fittingly, the composition of the expedition team was very diverse. One expedition participant, Commander Razor II, explained his keen interest in the expedition. The incentive and lure were big, so I registered the same day. I scraped together my credits and bought a battered anaconda, which had been modified by some shady types so I could muster the recommended 50-plus light-years range for the expedition. I made my way to Colonia first in order to visit the engineers there. You'll want to have your ship as light as possible, and stocked with Jumponium. A few days later, I was happy and relieved to meet with fellow explorers in that remote part of the galaxy. There hadn't been a strict route or playbook, just a be there with a date slapped on it. The expedition was special in that, although the trek started with the common kickoff ritual of a group jump to Altair, Alfe Aquilae, there was no strict route to Aquila's halo, which resulted in many individual choices. In the end, however, three general itineraries manifested. The first included a stopover in Colonia to pick up additional members of the expedition with one of the carriers, Commander Jack Silver's Spencer Rifle. This was by far the most popular route and would also include a later survey around the permit-locked Hyponia sector. The two other itineraries had more direct approaches to the halo, roughly following the curvature of the Orion Cygnus arm. They also included a liaison with at least two fleet carriers from the Deep Space Survey Array. DSSA, 
and the Intergalactic Astronomical Union, IGAU, namely the Inverness and Deep Space 27. An excellent opportunity to exchange news and gossip, as well as thanking the station crews aboard the carriers for their service out there. All three treks had the goal to reach what some explorers call Salome's Diadem, Foa Frae AA-AHO, a tribute to one of the more enigmatic heroines of the exploration community. The binary star system posed as an expedition meetup with its massive supergiant star, and it lay at the Halo's doorway. Why now, Aquila's Halo? The region is extremely remote and includes vast stretches of space beyond even the outer arm of the Milky Way with an exceedingly thin stellar density. What's there to find? Again, Commander Jasper Lai shared his vision with us. My attention turned to Aquila's Halo when another commander noted the absence of reports of stellar phenomena or other noteworthy points of interest. I thought there must be something waiting out there. I hoped, indeed expected, that we'd find something new there. I also expected that this would be a technically challenging voyage. The stars out there are few and far between. Injected jumps are the norm, and automatic plotting using Galmap is almost impossible. To facilitate the trip, the expedition was laid out along a dozen waypoints with a very loose schedule and a number of meetings. These were especially important because of what experienced spacers call Deep Space Disassociation Syndrome, or DSDS, or just Space Madness. The solitude out in the black, the lack of social interaction, and the realization that you have to survive out there on a chatty covas and synthetic food cartridges can be challenging for some pilots, so it's not uncommon to hold a number of social events during prolonged trips. Among these, Canyon dives on low-gravity worlds seemed to be the most popular. On more than one occasion, explorers would gather along the rim of a deep canyon or atop a steep mountain and somersault their SRVs down towards the bottom. Those who had them available also dashed into the canyons with their fighters. These were all very pleasant and relaxing acts. Before the pilots got back to work again to survey the scant surrounding star systems. Other activities also included refueling the carriers at one time with an offering of original Hutton mugs to miners who delivered more than 1,000 tons of tritium. It's this kind of social event that helps to keep pilots sane. Part of the Eagles and Angels expedition was a survey of the borders of the permit-locked Hyponia sector that lies on the way to Aquila's Halo. More specifically, its borders were to be searched for either alien lifeforms or traces of man-made industrial operations. The reason for this was that very early gossip from 3301 suggested that the Pilots' Federation has locked down the region for a reason, and speculation had linked it to the mysteries of the Formidine Rift, and later the clandestine Project Dynasty, despite, or perhaps because of, its remote location. There had been several surveys of Hyponia already, namely as part of the Daedalus Wing in March 3301 by the first Raxler Seekers, progenitors of the late Formidine Rifters. But with a sizable expedition force, it was deemed feasible to do so again in a search to come up with... something. Interestingly, the Hyponia region is nearly spherical in shape, which fueled speculations that this something in its heart is shielded from intrusion. 
So the commanders did what also had been done when the Cone Sector expedition of September 3304 had been prepared. They charted neutron stars along its outer edge for a possible FSD charge, and they were also looking for possibly overlooked catalogued stars, mostly with HD, HIP or two MASS designations within the permit-locked zone. Universal Cartographics is known for a number of accidental omissions elsewhere when it comes to locking down entire sectors, so there was an outside chance that such a star would be found here. Sadly, no such star was found. The Hyponia survey identified a number of uncharted neutron stars, but it couldn't locate any means to circumvent the permit lock, neither could they confirm any clandestine activities. Still. The collaborative effort was deemed worth the try, and the pilots finally moved on to liaise with the rest of the group while Hyponia, and very likely the Pilots' Federation, kept their secrets. In Aquila's Halo, the expedition pattern changed. Due to the low density of stars and the scarcity of available routes, the expedition members split up in their search for any astronomical phenomena. Their routes crisscrossed the galaxy map like a giant spiderweb and often connected systems that lay more than 60 light years apart. Within Achilles' halo itself, the waypoints were chosen simply as known accessible systems along the entire length of the region, to ensure that the expedition covered as much territory as possible while remaining within the region as much as feasible. The results of these efforts was a compendium of astronomical data on hundreds of star systems, with more than a dozen newly discovered Earth-like worlds among them, which the expedition promised to hand over to the scientific community for further analysis. For this achievement, explorers had to push their ships and themselves to the limits. Commander Razor 2 gave us some impressions of the arduous navigation the region mandated. Days and weeks passed by and I explored a whole bunch of uncharted star systems, always testing the limits of my Annie's frameshift drive and the ability to synthesize more jumponium. The drive cringed each time I forced it to jump more than 120 light years, but it never failed me. The shady types back home must have been experts at range modding and it paid off here where star systems are often more than 80 light years apart. A particular survey effort of this stretch of the trip was the ascent. Parts of the team had identified a group of solitary red giant stars in the Nayumi sector nearly 2,000 light years above the galactic plane, so they tried to scout a route. It was a notable effort because an ascent of 2,000 light years near the edge of the galaxy was extremely difficult. Along with two necessary neutron boosts, their jump chain was never less than 76 light years. But in the end, they made it, and were rewarded with spectacular bright red orbs shining against a fantastic Milky Way below. Another alluring of somewhat optional waypoint was Star One by Yathoi, GC-DD12-0, a system more than 41,000 light years from the galactic core and often described as the last star before Andromeda. The route is strenuous too, for more than a thousand light years relies heavily on jumponium and manual route plotting. Those who have made it back from Star One certainly have their own tales to tell. It can be assumed that's the case with all participants. The common goal was to reveal the jewels of one of the lesser scrutinized regions the galaxy has to offer. 
Since the expedition suggested many individual routes and choices instead of one main itinerary, stories brought home will differ. In late December 3306, Commander Jasbeer Lai was kind enough to reveal his personal thoughts on a possible outcome. As far as we can tell, there is nothing out there. Still, we were surprised to find just how little new territory we actually discovered. Vast tracts of the Rim have already been explored to saturation by many of the great names in early exploration. That, no doubt, is a consequence of system sparsity. Once there, it really is possible to visit everything that's reachable. The fleet carriers were probably less of an asset than I hoped, though being able to turn in exploration data regularly and to restock SRVs and SLFs probably helped commanders to be a little less risk-averse. Although this may read as somewhat anticlimactic, it's one of the realities of exploration and expeditions. Not every region is a treasure trove. Still, one of Earth's great astronomers, the pioneer plaque creator Carl Sagan once said, somewhere something incredible is waiting to be known. When Eagles and Angels makes it back home, there will be new reasons to go out on yet another expedition in order to find that something. At the time of writing, the last official meetup of the expedition is scheduled to be at Omega-1 Achille on the 24th of January, thus giving the expedition a somewhat metaphysical alpha and an omega ending. By the time this issue of the magazine is published in early 3307, most explorers will likely have made it home again, after a route of more than 120,000 light years long. However, as with most expeditions, there will be stragglers and pilots who have found other interesting jewels out there in the black. It's not uncommon for those adventurers to stay out there for lengthy periods of time, and their tales may well be included in a future issue. Carl Sagan would be reassured that something is still out there, waiting to be known. Thank you for listening to issue 33 of Sagittarius Eye. This issue featured articles written by Osashes, Ariri, and Andrew Gasper, and was edited by Adernis, Lee Lockhart, Vertical Blank, and Mac Winston. This audio edition featured the voices of Beetlejuice, Wrangler, Actual, Adler Vice, Catisfaction, Kaizen, Scott Cleverton, and Wotherspoon, and was edited by Wotherspoon. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Driscoll and Toko So. We'd like to thank our Patreon subscribers for their continued support of our efforts to entertain and inform the galaxy by Commanders, for Commanders. For copies of back issues of our magazine, please visit our website at sagittarius-i.com. Sagittarius I was created using assets and imagery from Elite Dangerous with the permission of Frontier Developments PLC for non-commercial purposes. It is not endorsed by nor reflects the views and opinions of Frontier Developments, and no employee of Frontier Developments was involved in the making of it. Sagittarius.